So I'm, <clears throat> I'm part of this group that is uh, putting together this thing called Recovering Clay. Uh, since Hurricane Irma went through, you know, most of us are back online, but there are some folks that are really devastated in our county. And then there are some cracks in the system where some people are going to fall through. And I've been getting together with community leaders and slowly putting in place a, um, uh, working with them actually to put in place some kind of a safety net to help. Um, but, but this is still in the works. And several weeks ago, right when the idea was getting started, I got a call from someone who said, hey, I hear you're putting together a fundraising mechanism to help people in need in Clay County. And I said, yeah, I'm part of a group that's doing that. And this guy said, well, I really want to help. And I said, well, hold on a little bit. We're going to have this thing together in a, in a month or so. And he goes, no, no, my, I want to help right now. Like my company, I want to make a gift for my company. I, I, I want, and I heard you could help. And he was just so insistent. I finally said, listen, tell you what, if you write a, che a check to the church and write recovering clay in the memo, I promise you, I will make sure that all of those dollars go to help people that were affected by this storm. And then I hung up and I thought, oh, well, I don't know how big this company is. I don't know anything about it. I hope $10,000 doesn't show up tomorrow. Because if I got a hundred bucks, that's much easier to deal with. If I have $10,000 and I have no mechanism for distributing this equitably, the accountability of that would be a lot of work. And I, I didn't want to have to figure out how to use that well, but I don't want to squander it either. My friend Tom is a pastor in a church on the West Coast, and in a certain uh, teaching series, he actually, of his own money, his own household's money, taped $100 bills under a number of the chairs in his church as he was talking about generosity and, and challenging his church to sow into the kingdom. And he had people reach under their chair, and if they had a $100 bill taped to it, the task was, in the next two weeks, find a need, go meet it, give the whole thing away, and then come back with a testimony of what God did. One of the ladies that got one walked right up to him after the church service and said, I don't want this. Gave the $100 back to him because she didn't want the accountability that comes with that. Like, I'm going to have to go find a need, I'm going to have to meet it, and then I'm going to have to give a testimony of how I met that need, and she didn't want the extra work. Now, here's the point. If we actually think that we're accountable for stuff, material goods, that makes us anxious about it. That puts pressure on us. It's... It, it can make us very uneasy because we're afraid that we're not going to use it well and that we're going to be asked by God, what did you do with what I've given you? And we're going to go, ah, and not have a good answer. Now, money is a, it's, it's a, it's many things, but it is not neutral. It is not a neutral topic whatsoever. Um, and the problem is that there's both opportunity and challenge. And the challenges that come along with money and possessions, and when I say money, I just mean stuff, wealth in general, whether it's money or material things or whatever. The problem is it can lead to um, idolatry and coveting and fear. It can lead to injustice where greed causes another person to suffer. It can lead to all these different societal sicknesses. But then there are these opportunities. It actually can provide, in a limited way, security, it can alleviate people's hardships. It can be a blessing. It can provide you with stuff that's enjoyable. It can make life pleasurable and easier. And, and so there's opportunity with it, but then there's also real risk with it. Like I said, it's not neutral. And considering how powerful it is, 
I mean, it's one of the big three. Sex, money, and power are the three big things that trip up people the most. It's one of the big three, and it's, it is, in a sense, a god, lowercase g, because it has that kind of status and effect on people's lives. Because it's so powerful, um, it would be irresponsible of the one who provides it to not give instruction. You wouldn't give children fireworks without telling them how to use them and giving them safety instructions. Maybe you shouldn't give them fireworks at all, but, you, but if you do, you would be remiss not to say, wear eye protection and don't do this near the house or something that could burn and make sure there's a long wick and make sure there aren't people around or whatever, right? And so our Lord, who has given us all things, as we say at the offering, all things come from you, O Lord, and of what is your own stuff, we are giving this back to you. Our Lord, who's given us this, has given us instruction as well. A lot, in fact. Um, I didn't go counting, but other people have, and they've, they've said that Jesus talked more about money and possessions than any other topic except the kingdom of God in general in the Gospels. So, because it's so important and so powerful, Jesus gives us a ton of instruction about it. So, what I would like to do in this series on healing is consider the healing we need in the area of money and finances, and the damage that is caused by its misuse. And I need to do this in two parts. Um, the today, I'm going to look at, we'll call this part one of the sermon, establishing the attainments of wealth. In other words, figuring out what the goal is that God has for stuff. What are we supposed to do with it as his managers of his stuff? And then in two weeks, next week we have baptisms, in two weeks we'll come back with part two and we'll look at not, not the, well, today it's the establishing the attainments, in two weeks it'll be overcoming the attachments. We want to make sure that money doesn't control us, but that we control it and use it. So how do you do that? So today it's the attainments, the goal. And the question is, to what end or goal does God want us to use wealth? That's the question we're asking. And the text for today is Luke chapter 16. It's the parable of the dishonest manager. So if you want to turn in a pew Bible there, we're going to look at this parable. Um, in this section of Luke's gospel, um, Jesus is flipping back and forth in which part of his crowd he's addressing. Sometimes he's speaking to the religious leaders, like in chapter 15 when he tells the parable of the prodigal son. Then sometimes he turns and talks to the disciples. And then sometimes he turns and goes and says, if you look at like chapters 14 through, let's say 17 of Luke's gospel, and just notice who he's addressing, it goes back and forth. This parable says, verse one, he also said to the disciples. So that's an important thing to catch here. This is discipleship teaching. This is not the kind of thing that he's proclaiming out to the general masses to try and share the gospel with them. It is actually an implication of the gospel. Once you come alongside the Lord and begin to follow him as one of his people, then this instruction is useful. If we think this is about salvation, we get confused. So if you're a Christian, listen up. This is aimed at you. If you're not a Christian, listen up because this tells you what is expected of stuff and how God views it, which is really helpful to see. The Pharisees were watching this from the outside and then they comment after and Jesus gives more teaching about money. What's tricky about this is the way that Jesus constructs this particular parable. So there's an owner who has a manager who he puts in charge of his accounts. And obviously he's managing the, the results of an agrarian culture. There's wheat, there's olive oil, and you assume a hundred other products. And word comes back to this owner 
that his manager is, the word is like squandering or um, it's the exact same Greek word as the prior chapter's prodigal son. He wasted his father's possessions. This manager is wasting the owner's possessions. Word comes back, so he goes to him and, um, and says, you need to give an account. I want all your accounts. Reconcile those, turn that in, you're fired. And for a brief window, this manager has still some power. And he starts to get concerned. I'm too weak to dig ditches. Manual labor is not for me. I'm too proud to go begging for help. I obviously can't get another job as a manager. What am I going to do? So he quickly comes up with a solution. Now, it's here that this parable trips a lot of people up because it looks like God is commending dishonesty. And I'll just briefly say, most of the commentators suspect that built into the system here was a way to get around the Jewish law of not being allowed to charge interest on loans. And so what they would do is they would basically get their profit by expecting more of the product come back instead of money. Like, I, you know, I've given you so much to sow this field, I want X in return from the field. So built into the amount is a profit of sorts. And it's questionably dishonest. So the owner was also implicit in this. Like the manager's not the only one who's doing things kind of on the side. So basically he goes around to, it gives, Jesus gives two examples, but you assume all the accounts. How much oil do you owe? A hundred measures, okay, quick, sit down, make it 50. How much wheat? Quick, sit down, make it 80, whatever it is. And you assume he does this with all of them. He's cutting out all of the skimming off the top and giving it back, right? So he's trying to ingratiate the people into his favor so that he then will be able to basically call in the favor later when he doesn't have a job. And when the owner finds out that he's done this, he actually commends him for it for the shrewdness of it. Now, please note something. It's one thing to commend a dishonest manager for shrewdness. It's another thing to commend a shrewd manager for dishonesty, okay? He's not commending the dishonest behavior, but the shrewdness. And knowing where Jesus is going with this teaching, I think you could lump the owner and the manager both into worldly, the worldly category. So, He's saying, consider how worldly people are shrewd. How much more should people of faith be shrewd when it comes to spiritual things? That's the takeaway. And I, I, love, that, um, I, I love that Jesus gives the answer, right? In case you missed the point of the parable, in verse uh, 8 through 9, he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for shrewdness, and he says, for... The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. And I tell you, here's the point, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus wants his disciples to think strategically, shrewdly about the investment of the resources that he is entrusted to us temporarily with the long view in mind. He's saying, consider how worldly people do this. They're so shrewd, but you guys aren't. Be more like them, except not dishonest. So why is it that worldly people are so shrewd and Christians are not? Well, I, there's probably a number of reasons, but I just came up with two. Their, their earnestness, their quickness to come up with a scheme that will land in their advantage comes out of the fact that it's natural to human nature. 
how young does a kid start saying mine? Have you ever seen two younger siblings, particularly if one is, a, let's say, I don't know, just hypothetically a year and a half older than her younger sister, and there's a squabble over something, and the older sister wants to solve it. So she comes up with this scheme that will placate the younger sister. It's always in the favor, just tipped the scales always to the older one, right? It's just human nature is I want to come out on top. I cannot be fair. I'm going to deal this some way in my favor. That's human nature. And so that's how the world functions. But Christians are internally conflicted because I know I shouldn't be like that. The Lord's called me to something else. I know I want to come out on top, but I know I should be generous. And so we're hesitant. Charles Simeon, who's a, an Anglican priest from the 19th century in England, he, he wrote this. He said, Christians have to oppose the tide of their corrupt nature, while others have only to commit themselves to its impulsive current. Just get really good at looking out for number one is the worldly way. But Christians have to constantly oppose our human nature, which is, which is trying to be self-centered. But we're going, no, no, I'm called to another thing. And so that's one of the reasons I think that we're not shrewd like worldly people are. Another is consider their ingenuity the creativity with which worldly people come up with solutions to problems. They do it because their hope is in this world. They think, this is all that I get. I better make the most out of this life because if I'm not getting every bit of this, then I'm missing out. You know, that's where these mantras like whoever dies with the most toys wins and all that kind of stuff comes from. We think, worldly people think, this world is all I've got. I got to get as much as I can. But Christians don't. People of faith don't have to do that. In fact, we have to surrender that thinking and take the long view. And so we, we say, I recognize there's nothing in this world that could possibly satisfy me. I live for something greater, something bigger. There is more to come. So I like how, uh, for instance, the Apostle Paul puts it in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. It's that great exchange where Jesus, the one through whom all things were made, had everything, emptied himself of that, and took on poverty, voluntary poverty, to rescue us out of our spiritual poverty, so that then he could confer on us a title to an inheritance of riches that will be made manifest in the day to come. And I do mean physical riches as well as spiritual ones. It is a physical resurrection that he has won. It hasn't happened yet, but the day is coming when there will not only be a new body for you, but stuff as well. And so I wanna make a couple of application points about this or um, observations and then take it to um, some interpretations. The first one is this. Right now, we are temporary managers. We are temporary managers, not actual owners. That has to be the case because of death. There is nothing that's physical that you could possibly have that can get past the grave. And so therefore, you're, you're only temporary. You're a temporary manager of stuff. Now, the Egyptians tried really hard. And so they embalmed people and they filled the pyramids and the tombs, which made for great archaeological finds. But guess what? There were pots and gold and all sorts of stuff in those tombs that didn't make it across. Best wishes, but it doesn't work. So we're temporary. I mean, anything that you have, 
Someone will own your house one day that's not you. Someone will have all of your bank accounts, not you. Your physical body will be in the ground eventually. You don't get to take any of that with you. So you have to recognize I'm a temporary manager. And then if you look at verse 12, it says, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now it's a question, and it's sort of rhetorical, but it implies that you will get something of your own, or at least you could get something of your own. A day will come when you will have material things, and no death will separate you from those, and they will be yours for eternity. And so right now it's temporary, then it will be permanent. So what does transcend the grave? Relationships. You can actually do things in this life to build relationships that will carry on. Those relationships will go on forever. People that you know right now that also are believers, you will know forever. There'll be a brief separation while one of them or all of them or whatever are still alive and you're not. And you'll be reunited with other people who've gone ahead. And then a reunion of other sorts will come where you then will go and, and be with them. So those relationships that you're building right now, faith-based relationships, are eternal. Your relationship with God and your relationship with other believers, those things transcend the grave. So verse 9, Jesus gives us the interpretation. Make what with unrighteous wealth? Make for yourself friends so that they may receive you into eternal dwellings, into God's house for eternity. Make those friendships with wealth. He's telling us what to do. If I could paraphrase, I'd say, invest in the spiritual faith-based community. Invest in that. A vibrant, thriving, healthy, gospel, grace-centered church ministry, in my opinion, is the best investment for your stuff. Now, I stand up here as an employee of the church, and you might think, well, you say that because you work for the church. Actually, I work for the church because I believe that. I had a a promising career in engineering and making money and all that stuff. I walked away from that because I realized building this was better than building buildings. And I had a call. I mean, God was calling me to it. And I said, yes, I will do this. I believe that's the best investment. My desire, my vision, my hope for our world is that there would be a church like this one in, let's say, a 10-minute drive of every person in this country. So you don't have to drive 45 minutes across the city to get to a church that is a vibrant health community, a vibrant and healthy faith community. I long for that because I believe the church is the hope for the world. So if you're thinking, you know, what should I do with the stuff God has entrusted to me? Invest it in those relationships, those faith-based relationships that are going to go on forever. Now, maybe that means investing in missions work or the efforts to bring the gospel to people who don't yet know the Lord so that they will then come over because then anybody that you lead to faith, you will get to spend eternity with. I'm telling you right now, I will forever be thanking my youth pastor and the pastor at that church and my friend that, that brought me to that youth group. And like those were physical, physical circumstances that brought about a spiritual reality that affected eternity for me. The same will be true for anyone that you bring to faith or any investment you make in faith communities. I just think that's what Jesus wants us to do. And it seems really clear, clear here. If you can come up with a better way to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, friends that will receive you into eternal dwellings, let me know. To me, it just seems investing in the work of the church so that God's kingdom will break in and then continue on. So, so far I've said you're a manager temporarily, 
you're not an owner of, and, th- and that doesn't mean like give God 10% of your stuff. That means how much of his stuff are you going to keep to live on, by the way? It's all his and you're using it. What are you using it for? So you're, te- it's, you're a temporary manager. Second, relationships are what matter more than anything. Sp- in particular, the spiritual ones, ones with other Christians, those ones will transcend the grave. And then third, faithfulness is the key here. Look at verse 10. He says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Money is in a sense a test or an opportunity for growth. It's hard. This is a hard topic. As I said, it's not neutral. And the Lord has entrusted you with stuff. Some, has, some people have more than others, but we have stuff. And, and what we do with this is an opportunity to put in practice what we say we believe. If I actually believe what I've already said, that nothing I have right now is my own, that only relationships will transcend the grave, everything is going to be left behind, am I willing then to act on that and make shrewd business and household decisions with that in mind? Jesus is saying, think more like the shrewd worldly people, but do it with spiritual principles. Use your stuff for kingdom work. That's what he wants. That's what he longs for. So let's be smart about that. One of the things that I'm really proud about this church is all the really good ministry that's happening. And so I keep trying to get that out to you, like, look at the pledge card, look at the things that have happened, the town hall meeting, look at all the ministry that's going on, the people that are coming to faith, those that are Christians that are growing in their faith and starting to turn over more and more of their lives to the Lord. This is really exciting. It's a powerful thing. It's not surprising that the church is growing because Jesus is behind that kind of a thing. Every, every Sunday, I invite us to bring our tithes and offerings, and I usually say it's an act of worship. It also helps us break the control of money in our lives, but I also will mention that it's one of the ways that we underwrite the missions and the ministry of the church. I want you to know what the church leadership is doing with the money you put in the plate. I want you to know that it's being invested wisely. Take a look at it. Look at what's happening. It's about faithfulness. And what Jesus is saying is, be faithful in the little bit I've given you now, because there is more to come. If you're faithful in a little bit, you'll be faithful with a lot. So again, it's a, it's, it's, this is a hard topic. It's one of the reasons that money is one of the last things that, that comes under the, the lordship of Jesus when a person converts, because it is so tough to do. But thankfully, that's part of discipleship. We have a life to walk this out. And I want to encourage you to make faith the first thought when you consider where you're spending stuff, where you're spending your money. Ask God about it. Tell him what your wants are. Tell him to give you some insight. Look at his word. Read the other teachings about money around this section of Luke's gospel. Say, Lord, show me how to invest in your kingdom. Make me a wise steward. Help me to be shrewd and apply my logic and my intelligence for your kingdom. And then trust him. Start doing it. Let's pray. Lord, this is um, such a blessing that you've been so generous with your things and given us so much. Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir within us a vision that is longer than just 80 or 90 or 100 years, but that we would start thinking in millions of years as eternal souls. Lord, help us to build the faith community so that will be received into eternal dwellings. Lord, give your church shrewd thinking about how to use things. For I ask this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.